0: This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to session 18, Power of the Spirit, Part A, from the series Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Zor Fellowship. Okay. So today we're doing session 18 of our series. Um, So the last few sessions we've been focusing on looking at certain uh, potential misunderstandings of the way the Holy Spirit works or understanding passages in Scripture that depict the Holy Spirit as being um, in antithesis to something else, right? So these verses flesh versus spirit, uh, the letter versus the spirit, and, um, so this session today is going to be kind of, uh, the last of those sorts of sessions. I, uh, originally was going to call this something versus something, but I, um, to be honest, I had a bit of trouble trying to figure out what to call this session, uh, so, uh, I ended up deciding on calling it the power of the spirit, talking about what it means when the Holy Spirit is working in power. And so, this is going to kind of be carrying on some of the themes we've already been talking about with flesh versus spirit, the leather versus the spirit. What does it mean to be in the power of the spirit, um, while also uh, being a segue into the last two sessions of this when we talk about revival and walking in the Spirit. I did, like I said, struggle a bit to know what to call this because I want to talk about what it means to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, but I also want to steer us away from some of the ways that could be misunderstood. But at the same time, I don't want it to be it's so easy to end up focusing solely on the negative um and there are a lot of ministries out there both christian and even some messianic ministries where the sole purpose of that ministry is to oppose false teachings that they encounter right heresy hunters that would make a great tv show riveting series (laughs) um using the Bible as a club to knock down all those uh, who use it wrongly. Um, and by the way, I'm not quite sure that's what Paul had in mind when he said that the Bible is the sword of the spirit. <laughs> I don't think he meant that we're supposed to use it against one another. That's not a sword for cutting down our fellow believers. But, but there's there's something that is very addictive about uh, focusing solely on opposing all the falsehood around us Uh, and I've come to the conviction that that's not a healthy place to be Uh, you know one of the trends in society that today is deconstruction we tend to deconstruct everything you know how oh, you think you know what uh, um, this means you know what does race mean well we're going to deconstruct that for you so now you can't rely on your previous categories of thinking what does gender mean well we're going to deconstruct that and now you can't uh, you can't think of it the way you always used to so we're always opposing thing. but the problem with deconstruction is that um, by its nature it never offers a viable alternative it's like the way you're thinking about that is completely wrong, uh, but I'm not going to bother to try and construct a practical way of moving forward so that we can figure out what's right. Now, yeah, I wonder if sometimes we fall are in danger of falling into that trap. I mean, I'm not saying we personally, but uh, as a body. Uh, when you see groups that focus solely on the negative, solely on this, this uh, heresy hunting, bunk busting, I think when you fail to set up, you know, okay, what's now a healthy spirituality moving forward that we can work with and, and build upon, uh, you end up with spiritual atrophy when all you're doing is saying this is wrong, this is wrong. I'm defining myself by all the negatives around me and not um, in a positive way. Of course, the opposite is unhealthy. Some people are eager to embrace everyone and everything. Let's just go around giving everyone a big hug <laughs> and everyone's fine. You know, well, we're just a nice, big, happy family. And um, we, you know, all these different streams have so many good things to offer. Let's embrace it all and turn a blind eye to all the falsehood and blatant unbiblical stuff that's being purveyed so uh, you know that extreme refuses to exercise discernment or discretion refuses to call out false teaching out of a pretense of not wanting to come across negative or whatever it may be kind of like a. Toddler who goes around putting everything into his mouth that he finds on the floor. Whether it's food or bugs or whatever, right? Stuff that's not good for you. So yeah, there's that extreme. And then there's the extreme of those who focus solely on heresy hunting and end up with a stifled, crippled spirituality that prides itself in being discerning while completely missing the main point of what it means to be a disciple of Yeshua, like a giant game of whack-a-mole you know these these moles pop up out of these different holes and you hit them with this thing and um, your whole focus is is on bashing these insidious little false teachings over the head and you never actually get around to building the kingdom Um, you know we could spend a whole series on all the ways that people misunderstand the holy spirit and and never get past that and i think that would be a mistake all right you know maybe some people are called to be white blood cells in the body of messiah and and we need that and there's there's definitely there's a need to point out what's unbiblical you could call it for what it is, but when your immune system gets out of hand, that can be just as detrimental as an immune system that isn't fighting off bad stuff coming in, right? Autoimmune diseases are no better than an immune system that isn't working at all. All right, so I, I just preface all that for this session as a reminder Uh, both for this session and for some of the sessions we've already been through, that I don't want us to get to the end of this session with a smug sense of satisfaction that we've whacked all the moles that dared to raise their ugly heads, and now our job is done. Instead, I want us to have a greater hunger for more of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. And so the big question we want to ask is, what does it look like to walk in the power of the Spirit, right? We don't want to just walk in the Holy Spirit as, some, as a passive enterprise where, you know, oh, it's just what we're already doing already, so we can pat ourselves on the back and go home. Is there room to grow? And I think if we can find some room to grow, then we've lost our vision and we've lost our ability to mature as a disciple of Yeshua. All right, so, but at the same time, there are a lot of competing visions about what it looks like to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And let's be honest, there are some groups out there that have emphasized the power of the Holy Spirit in ways that are downright wacky, and that I don't think truly represent the power of the Holy Spirit. So someone can claim to be doing something empowered by the Holy Spirit, but are they really, right? So there's, we need to have discernment as we come into this question as well. Then on the flip side, it's tragic that some believers are turned off by all that wacky stuff to the point that they're scared of experiencing the power of God's Spirit. I mean, both are tragic, right? And what I desperately want is God's power without man-made sensationalism. So, what does that mean, and what does that look like? I don't pretend to have all the answers, but hopefully we can look into some of the some of the dynamics at work. Okay, so. For this session, we're going to talk about the biblical basis for power. Like, what does the Bible say about the power of the Holy Spirit? Um, Is that even a thing? Let's look at what the Bible says. Uh, Then we'll talk about signs and wonders. Is this, you know, when people say you need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life or in your congregation? Well, for some people, that means you need signs and wonders. What is that? What does the Bible say about signs and wonders? Um, What's the difference between true power and sensationalism or hype? That we'll talk about next time. And then spiritual warfare. This is a topic I thought maybe we could do. Originally, I was thinking of doing a session just on that, but then I thought, well, I need to keep it to a nice round number, 20 sessions in total. So we'll, it kind of fits into talking about power, too. What does it mean to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, for some people, um, that involves a certain definition of spiritual warfare. We'll talk about what does the Bible say about spiritual warfare, and what is this battle that we're waging in the spirit that Paul talks about? because there is a very real spiritual battle that we're waging. Um, so what are some of the good ways that we can embrace that, and what are some of the ways that that has been perhaps uh, misunderstood? All right, so those are the main things. Today we'll focus on the first two, the biblical basis for power, and then we'll dive delve into signs and wonders a little bit. All right, so we've talked about this before. This is kind of Uh, a bit of a review of stuff we've already seen uh, as well as uh, putting it together in a way we haven't necessarily done before but when the Holy Spirit comes upon people in scripture something happens they do something or they say something right um and We've looked at this, especially in our session on the Holy Spirit in the Tanakh. We saw that every time the Holy Spirit comes on someone, it's for a purpose. There's a task that God has for that person that God is empowering that person to do. So some random examples include Judges 3.10, when the Spirit of the Lord uh, came upon Othniel and he judged Israel and he goes and wages war right? So God's spirit comes upon him and empowers him in this role of being a judge of Israel and delivering her through military victory. Uh, Judges 15, 14, talking about Samson, um, just one of the, there, there's other places that talk about Samson, how the spirit of the Lord comes on him. Here it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, the ropes that were on his arms became as flax and his bonds melted and he, uh, start striking down the philistines with the jawbone of a donkey how many of us want to be empowered that way <laughs> how many spare donkey jawbones do we have around here well there's moose jaw not far from here it's a little different all right second chronicles 15:1. the spirit of god came upon azariah the son of oded and he utters this prophecy right so there's you know god's spirit comes there's an action that that person is empowered to perform micah 3 8 but as for me i am filled with power with the spirit of the lord and with justice and might to declare to jacob his transgression and to israel his sin there is a job that none of us should want to have that job of having to point out to god's people their faults some people like doing that sort of thing and i think most of those people who enjoy it are probably not the ones that God has called for that task. <laughs> but but that's, that's something that Micah was empowered to do. It says he's filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord to proclaim this prophetic word to God's people. We also see the Spirit's power in Yeshua's ministry. Oh, this comes up quite frequently. Luke 4, 14 and Yeshua returning returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Um, so he's, he's in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he goes and he's preaching in Galilee. Um, and verse 36, They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So it wasn't... Yeshua was empowered to speak a message. He was also empowered to do things. He was given power over the demonic forces that were at work in, in those days. Luke 5, 17. One of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So here's God's power working through uh in, in healing those who were there Luke six nineteen, and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out of him and healed them all and of course there's the the story of the woman who had been a f- suffering with the condition for 12 years and comes and touches his garment secretly and then he turns around and says who, who touched me the disciples are like, what are you talking about? There's crowds all around you, touching you all the time. And he says, no, I felt power go out of me. Interesting. It's not something I can say I've experienced uh, myself, but it was something tangible that Yeshua could feel, right? He could feel this power go out of him. Um, Acts ten thirty eight. Uh how God anointed Yeshua of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good, healing those who are oppressed by the devil, uh, and so on. Alright. Um, then so yeah, we see the Spirit's power working through Yeshua. We also see the Spirit's power working through the apostles. Luke twenty-four forty-nine. And behold, Yeshua says, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then Acts 1.8 says uh, a very similar thing. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This power is being given to the apostles in order that they may proclaim the gospel and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then we see that taking place, Acts four thirty three, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and great grace was upon them all. Um, Acts six verse eight, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. It's interesting how those last two verses uh, put power and grace parallel to each other we usually don't use the word grace that way do we we don't talk about people being full of power and grace to be able to but you know i i think this is it's acknowledging the uh the gift that this was this wasn't something that the apostles were doing themselves it wasn't something that was inherent to them it was a gift it was god who was doing it right All right, and then here's some verses that describe the Spirit's power working in us as believers. May the God of hope, this is Romans 1513 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And it goes on. Ephesians 3:16, That according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Holy Spirit effecting power in us. Ephesians 3.20 um, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So God's doing stuff, but he's using us in ways that we are not able to, things that we can't do in our own strength, but he empowers us to do them. This power at work within us. Colossians 1.11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's a, a fascinating combination describing what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is given to us that a spirit that doesn't bring fear to us, but that is of power of love and of self-control. And I think those three have to go together. If you're trying to do powerful stuff but you don't have love or if you're not self-controlled, then it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> so God's power has to work in concert with his love and with um, self-control, his spirit enabling us to walk in holiness and in love towards others. All right, so I think there is a clear basis for saying that we are called to serve God through the power of the Holy Spirit, that this idea of the Holy Spirit empowering or giving us power to serve God as clear biblical basis Um, which begs the question how many of us actually want that how many of us want the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives of course the Sabbath school answer is oh we all do (laughs) yeah of of course we all want God's power at work in our lives right Uh, but do we really because I think that involves yeah it's, it's not just a privilege, but there's a responsibility that goes along with that. We'll talk more about that, um, I think, in the next uh, next part of this session. But this is something that has come up before. When, uh, when we ask God to fill us with his spirit, we're asking him... For a job. God doesn't fill us with his spirit just so we can have nice feelings or a great experience. His power is to enable us to do what he's called us to do. And if we're not willing to go out and do something for him, why would we want his power? That's what his power is for. I think... There are two things that sometimes get in the way. Um, I'm There's others. We'll bring up others uh, later. But two things that I think are important here. One is fear and one is apathy. Perhaps we're afraid of what that might look like for God to work through us in power. Perhaps we're afraid, legitimate fear, of falling into error or of things getting out of hand in ways that, you know, we've seen le- legitimate perversions out there, things that go in ways that we are convicted is unbiblical, and we don't want to go there, obviously, right? And then there's also the fear of just being taken out of our comfort zone. So there are some healthy fears, but... Th- Fear is often something that hinders us as well. I think a more insidious obstacle is apathy. Just not caring. Sometimes we just don't care that much. Sometimes we're tired. We already have too much on our plates. And while we might pay lip service to wanting the Holy Spirit to be working in a more dynamic way in our lives, we really aren't feeling it at the moment. And so my prayer is that this session as we go through this, that this will help us to both overcome some of our fears while also cultivating a deeper hunger for more of the Spirit's work in our lives. All right, so let's talk about signs and wonders. For some believers, the idea of the Holy Spirit's power is automatically associated in their minds with signs and wonders. Let's talk about that. What is What are signs and wonders, and what do they mean by that? Um, has anyone heard of the signs and wonders movement? Um, anyone familiar with uh, this book? Uh, John Wimber wrote a book called Power Evangelism. I forget the date this came out. Um, probably in the 80s, yeah. So this was... Um, a book that really spearheaded the signs and wonders movement, uh, and Wimber was uh, involved with the startup of Vineyard and um, some other groups. He was—I want to say—he was at Fuller Theological Seminary, I think. Um, Along with now, I forget the other guy's name. I didn't write any of this in my notes, but no, um, yeah. But he was involved. He was teaching at at Fuller in the uh, missions department, and had a, had a big influence there, um, or he was involved in that with some other people whose names escape me at the moment. Uh, But anyway, one of the premises of this book is that evangelism, in order for evangelism to be truly effective, it needs to be accompanied by signs and wonders, meaning miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit done through the agency of those who are preaching the gospel. And that this is the next greatest move of the Holy Spirit. And that movement that came out of this uh, came to be known as various names: Signs and Wonders movement, the third wave of the Holy Spirit. So you you had Pentecostalism was the first wave, the Charismatic movement of the '60s, and so on was the second wave, and then this new wave from the '80s and '90s is the third wave of the Holy Spirit, according to those who followed that. Um, since then. It's come to be more varied than that. But we'll talk next time about more specifics regarding the movement. But for today, I want to focus on the role of miracles and signs and wonders in our lives as believers. Um, so specifically, the claim that signs and wonders are necessary to bring people into the kingdom. That's That was... Um, one of the premises put forward. Biblically, what does the Bible say about signs and wonders? Well, look at the Torah. Signs and wonders were not very effective at producing faith in people. Right? Look at uh, all the signs and wonders that God multiplied in Egypt before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh would still not believe. Look at The Israelites, who had seen all of God's signs and wonders, and then they still didn't believe. They rebelled. Signs and wonders won't sustain your faith. Uh, And, in fact, Deuteronomy 13 asserts the possibility of false signs and wonders. So, according to Torah, signs and wonders are something God does, something that is amazing, but not something that will secure people into believing in god and that the enemy can produce false signs and wonders okay i uh, made a almost exhaustive uh, catalog of all the references to signs and wonders in scripture and uh, according to my reckoning they fall into roughly six categories. There's six different kinds of signs and wonders mentioned in the Bible. There's the signs and wonders God did in Egypt. That's referenced so many times all throughout Scripture. Then there are the signs performed by Moses and Aaron. Remember God told Moses, you know, Moses like, how will they believe me when I go to the community in Israel? He's standing there in front of the burning bush. And Moses is objecting to this mission by saying, you know, I'm going to go there into Egypt to the Israelite community and try and tell them this. And they'll say, well, how can we believe you? And God says, well, here, I'll give you three signs, right? One was to throw down his staff and it become a snake. The other was to put his hand into his cloak and it would be leprous and then he could change it back again. The other was to pour water on the ground and it would turn into blood. So these are the signs that Moses was given. And later we read about signs that Aaron did as well. Uh, Moses would um, tell Aaron to throw down his staff. and It was a sign as well. Uh, Anyway, so those are signs and wonders performed by Moses and Aaron. The next category is signs or miracles performed performed by yeshua this comes the term sign or signs comes out especially in the gospel of john all throughout john it refers to yeshua's miracles as signs and i think there's a deeper theological uh motif going on there also in acts 2 we see uh yeshua worked with uh, did perform signs and wonders right then we see signs and wonders performed by the apostles um, there's a bunch of different references for that another category is the signs and wonders that will happen at the end times these are heavenly signs and wonders blood and fire and billows of smoke right Joel chapter 2 acts chapter 2 and luke talks about these things signs and wonders in the heaven and on earth revelation is all about that right and one more category false signs and wonders we read about that in deuteronomy 13 Um, in the prophets in the gospels there's repeated warnings about false prophets coming and doing signs and wonders Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Throughout Revelation, we see the false prophet performing signs and wonders. So there's this expectation of false signs and wonders to come in the end times being performed by false prophets. Look at all these different kinds of signs and wonders. Um, only two of them are actually performed by God's people. Right? We have the ones performed by Moses. And we have the ones performed by the apostles, Um, All the other categories are done by God or are false perversions, right? Uh, So we see Yeshua first and then the apostles walking in a role similar to Moses. There are predictions of signs and wonders in the end times, but nowhere are they predicted to be performed by God's people. Instead, the end time predictions focus on two different kinds of signs and wonders. The ones, the cosmic effects that God does, in the heavens and in the earth and things like that and then false signs and wonders those are the two kinds of signs and wonders predicted to be in the end times that doesn't mean that believers won't be performing signs and wonders in the end times but the bible offers no specific predictions about that there's 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 no specific expectation that god's people will be performing signs and wonders in the end times instead the warning is to Uh, watch out for false signs and wonders, and that God will do these cosmic effects that will be clear signs of the end. Uh, Good question. In um, Mark 16, it uses that phrase, signs and wonders. Uh, That's the part of the Gospel of Mark that a lot of people consider to have been added after, Like, it wasn't actually composed by Mark, but was added sometime later. Uh, But in that passage, it does refer to the apostles doing signs and wonders. Yeshua says, my followers will do this, right? Um, And we read exactly that in the book of Acts. They did those things. Um, But yeah, it's not, it doesn't specifically link that with the end times in that passage. So, so, uh, yeah, again, I'm not saying that there won't be miracles done through uh, God working miracles through his people in the end times. All I'm saying is that the focus of end time predictions is not on that when it comes to signs and wonders. Yeah, so in some groups, there is this expectancy that believers need to be... Uh, experiencing and performing signs and wonders in order to be truly walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? A couple things. uh, First of all, we should ask, is that a biblical expectation? Is it a biblical, uh, according to scripture, should we assume that if we're not experiencing signs and wonders that we are in a spiritually deficient state? Uh, That's one question. Another question is, should we assume that God will perform miracles in our day and through us? Um, We'll tackle those two questions. So, uh, one thing I'll say to start off is that, just a reminder that we're not the apostles. I mean, I, I think that's obvious, but sometimes we need to remember that, and that there was a Special status that the Apostles had that not every believer can claim that the vast majority of believers cannot claim if you weren't one of those Apostles uh, in my opinion it's slippery ground for anyone to try and claim to be an Apostle today we talked a bit about this when we were talking about the gifts of the Spirit um, and I made the statement that I believe all the gifts of the Spirit Uh, can and are through God's uh, prerogative operative among believers today except for the gift of apostleship Uh, there is a sense in which we can be apostles in the root meaning of the term Uh, the Greek word apostelo means to send an apostolos is a sent one an emissary shaliach right that's something that every missionary is that's something that anyone who goes to a new community to try and plant a congregation or to uh, reach out to people is doing right so there's a sense in which uh, we are called to participate in that but there's also a sense in which the the apostles designated by yeshua as such are unique that term apostolos and the Hebrew word shaliach can also carry a technical sense to mean an agent, a legal representative, right? It's it's kind of like today someone having power of attorney, someone who can legally represent you in a court situation or uh, in another, to, to enact a legal transaction, right? So in, uh, I do don't recall exactly where in rabbinic literature, but somewhere uh, in the Mishnah or Talmud, they they discuss how a person could um, send a shaliach to effect uh, an engagement for them. You don't actually have to be there yourself. If your shaliach is there to represent you, then it could be legally binding. Um, Things like that, right? So there's a sense in which the Apostles designated as such by Yeshua were there to to bear witness to his resurrection in a special way that none of us can claim to do. Paul was an interesting example because he says that he saw Yeshua, but he speaks of his apostleship in an interesting way. He acknowledges that his claim to apostleship is a little different than most of the apostles. Uh, he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he talks about how Yeshua, the Messiah, died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to a whole bunch of people, and he starts to list all these people that Yeshua appeared to. First to Cephas, then to the twelve, then Then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. So Paul was an interesting exception to this uh, title of apostle. And when we read in Acts chapter one about after Judas left to the place that was designated to him, as Peter puts it, um, they—it's a big decision for them to pick someone to replace him. It wasn't just anyone. There were qualifications involved. He had to have been there. He uh, had to have seen Yeshua risen from the dead. He had to have been part of the uh, learning from Yeshua from the time of being a disciple of John the Baptist to, you know, all these things. There were certain criteria involved. Anyway, so all that to say, none of us can claim that status, right? And when you look at the book of Acts and at some of what was happening in those days, we see the apostles performing miracles and things that most believers didn't right? So when we read about signs and wonders in the book of Acts, we don't read that every single believer was doing this stuff. We don't read that people were putting the sick out on the street so that any believer who walked past, if their shadow fell on them, they'd be healed. It was only the apostles, right? That, that happened to Peter. That happened to, uh, to Paul. So I don't think it's fair from uh honest reading of the apostolic scriptures i don't think it's fair for us to impose this expectation that we're all supposed to be performing miracles at that caliber yeah so so yeah we 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 do participate in that being sent out to be witnesses of yeshua we do participate in in being uh bearing his testimony to others uh, so there's that sense that we participate in. But we are not able to be the legal representatives, quote-unquote, of Yeshua's teaching the way that the apostles who composed the, new, the apostolic scriptures were, right? So there's, there's a, an apostleship that they had that we can't attain to, but then the role of being sent out is something that we are called to be a part of. Yeah, I mean, you look at all, all, every one of them died a martyr's death, and not all believers did, Um, and thanks be to God for that, but it was a heavy price that those apostles had to pay, yeah. That leads me to a question, why don't miracles happen today like they did in the book of Acts? Has anyone ever wondered that? I've I've often wondered that, and I've heard a number of people ask that question. Why don't miracles happen today like they did in the book of Acts? I mean, you read the book of Acts, and it sounds like there is miracles popping out right, left, and center all the time. So yeah, yeah, we are told that things will get worse in the latter days in certain respects. Um, We are also told to uh... live godly lives as we earnestly expect and hasten his coming So um, the answer is not to sit back and watch the world go to hell in a handbasket. but but yeah you're right that there is a sense in which things will get worse and that's to be expected you know one thing is that we have to keep in mind the book of acts stretches over a long period of time uh... Roughly 35 years. So we read all the highlights as we read through the book of Acts. We don't read the long, boring stretches. Um, that's one thing to keep in mind. If, if we picked uh, a 35-year span of time of all the believers in North America, for example, and picked out all the highlights all the miraculous things that took place. You know, I'd be willing to say it's it would be pretty spectacular to look at all that side by side. But someone might read that and get the wrong impression that that's the way daily life is like. You know, you just wake up thinking, oh, is it going to be 20 miracles or 30 miracles today? How many am I going to see that are going to be like, boom spectacular and everyone's wow right okay that's one thing one thing to keep in mind another thing to keep in mind is that god does perform miracles for us on a daily basis what do we pray in the amida the thanksgiving prayer for your miracles that are with us every day morning evening and afternoon right sometimes we don't give God the credit he deserves. (laughs) Or the fact that we're all alive, that we're here. Um, You know, there are miraculous stuff going on. God is doing miracles for us all the time. And if, if we can't acknowledge that, I think we're walking through this world with our eyes closed. And we need to ask him to open our eyes and see. Um... Through, through faith, all the amazing things that he does. Yeah, people who don't believe in God could try and explain it away. Or That was just a coincidence, or, you know, there's some scientific explanation, but no, as believers, like, we know <laughs> who runs this universe. We know who's the guiding hand behind all the stuff that goes on. Okay. Um, one last thing, or second last thing maybe i want to talk about in relation to miracles and signs and wonders is we look at the prophecies of the messianic era in the tanakh we've talked about this before in in other sessions but you you read all these prophecies of you know the messiah coming israel being restored Uh, Israel being brought back to the land, uh, Israel's enemies being defeated, uh, God turning the hearts of his people back to him, God setting up a righteous king to rule over his people. There's all these good things that God has in store for his people, and the Spirit is one of those good things. Yeshua's message when he came was that the kingdom is at hand right? It's, uh, it was proximate, not in, not necessarily just in time, but in, in space and in potentiality, right? You look at the, the parable of the fig tree in Luke 13, and it's like, Israel, in those days, at the the time that Yeshua was here on earth, was sitting in this balance, where things could go either way. There was the threat of destruction at the hands of the romans versus the potential of god's kingdom being established on earth the option was open and i believe that had israel repented and listened to the message of john the baptist and listened to the message of yeshua that things could have been very different in history That they would not have had to see the destruction of the second temple and that Yeshua's kingship on earth would have been inaugurated much sooner I think this 2,000 year exile was a consequence of the choice of the nation as well as God's providence knowing what would happen but Yeshua's message was that even you know despite those things There is a sense in which we can grasp hold of that kingdom today yes there's a future time coming when israel will be restored in her land and all these good things will take place that the bible promises but yeshua says that we're able to enjoy some of those good things of that kingdom in advance of its coming and this was demonstrated over and over again in yeshua's ministry his spirit-filled ministry the miracles he performed are all foretastes of the kingdom Look at the miracle of the wine at Cana, for example. I mean, this is just bubbling over with kingdom imagery, right? They're at a wedding, and they're running out of wine, and then there's this miraculous provision of, like, abundant wine that is unlike anything anyone had tasted, right? It's just amazing stuff. You compare that with some of the uh, traditions about the Messianic era and the, the wine preserved in its skins from the foundation of the world and things like that and it's like Yeshua was giving them a little taste of that. It wasn't even the kingdom yet but there's a way that you can grasp hold of some of that fruit. It was as though Yeshua stood at the threshold between this age and the messianic era and he was able to reach into that era and bring some of its good things into this era. Yeshua was just like Joshua he spied out the land and brought back some of its fruit to prove to everyone that it was a good land, and that they should go and conquer it. And, according to the legend, uh, the fruit that they brought back was of miraculous sizes. Right, this huge fruit from from the land of from the land of Israel. There's uh, all these paintings depicting these giant clusters of grapes and what else did they have pomegranates and things like that and yeah how they had to carry it on a pole between them because it was so big and so heavy but just like in joshua's day the people rejected the message of yeshua and their opportunity to enter the land was postponed The miracles done by Yeshua and the apostles were the byproduct of the proximity of the kingdom. The same ought to be true today. It's not something we work up. It's not our prerogative. It's something God does as he wills. Yes, we have to be open and receptive to God working through us, but it's not something we can conjure up. Miracles shouldn't be the primary focus, though. The kingdom should be. Yeshua says to seek first the kingdom, right? We're in a time of exile that has been here since the destruction of the temple. You can't help but notice historically that a lot of the spectacular stuff began to dwindle among believers when the temple was destroyed. I think there's a connection there, personally. I know a lot of Christians today would really disagree with me on that, but I think there's a connection between the temple and some of this miraculous stuff that was going on. Exile is a time of darkness, a time when in biblical imagery, God is hidden. His presence is still there. Even if it's not as evident, God is still there. That's his promise and he, he promises this throughout the prophets. Uh, Ezekiel is especially poignant with this imagery god accompanying his people into exile but even so miracles still happen every day god does miracles around us all the time and we should expect that as believers if we truly believe in god we believe that he's constantly directing our paths and orchestrating events to his glory not all miracles are big and spectacular but some are i've seen people receive miraculous healing not in a charismatic or pentecostal context uh, but miraculous nonetheless i'm sure many of us have stories of why we shouldn't be alive today especially us men (laughs) and i'm sure we all have stories of miraculous provision divine appointments dreams or other things that prove to be prophetic instances of miraculous direction and so much more and these are things we can expect from god on his terms if we combined all the highlights from our stories into a book I think it would be spectacular so the days of miracles are not over we see God's miracles big or small around us all the time and we can expect that and should keep our eyes open to that so we can thank God and praise him for them we should have our eyes open to see where is God at work today where can i thank him for what he's doing today but at the same time we need to remember that miracles are not the point in and of themselves yeshua is the point he's the one that our eyes are fixed on okay last thing as we wrap it up here there is uh sometimes i think we need to be content with daily manna Uh, let me explain what i mean by that in the wilderness god gave the children of israel this amazing supernatural bread called manna right man in hebrew uh, and based on the, the bible's descriptions it was tasty it was versatile you could make it into all kinds of different dishes and it was very nutritious no gmos no artificial flavors or colors it was all you needed for a balanced diet and on top of that it was free how many of us would love to get to try a piece of manna right wouldn't that be amazing i would love that did the children of israel appreciate it maybe the first day they did (laughs) maybe the first week even but eventually they got bored of it this amazing supernatural sustenance became something mundane to them so that they couldn't appreciate it and they craved other food right it's like that stuff that all any of us would love to have just a taste of just to see what it's like it's like you're bored of it Mm -hmm. so what happened every time they craved other food uh well they usually got what they craved and then some of them died sometimes i think our daily spirituality is like that a little bit it's like the manna you know when we pray when we immerse ourselves in god's word we're participating in an incredible supernatural experience but it's easy for us to forget that it's easy for us to see our daily spiritual life as mundane but craving other things comes at a price and it often results in spiritual casualties i think this is one of the things that drives some believers to start to try and explore other forms of spirituality or mysticism or whatever it may be and some people end up delving into that stuff and going off the deep end they weren't content with daily manna they had a craving for for to go elsewhere for spiritual excitement sometimes i think you know in the messianic movement we've talked about this how there's this wow factor You're trying to maintain this exhilarating spiritual buzz where you're always looking for the next new teaching, the next new um, table-turning kind of theological thing that's going to blow your socks off and completely change the way you think. Constantly looking for that next buzz. I think that that can... lead to an unhealthy place if we're not careful don't get me wrong we always need to be desiring and and yearning for more of god in our lives we should always be striving to get to know him more we should always be yearning for more of him and hunger is good if you never get hungry then you're ill right there's something wrong a lack of hunger is is a, a, a sign, a warning sign of something being wrong. But on the other hand, we can't allow our hunger to turn into a fetish for something on the other side of the fence. Our walk with God has to be dynamic. It's, it's moving, right? We're on, we're, we're on a journey together. We're following the cloud. It's not something we just sit down and we camp and stay here forever. It's, it's something we're growing in all the time. Uh, and the moment you stop moving is the moment you begin to atrophy. But it's God we're seeking, not man-made emotionalism or hype. And this is a good segue into the next session. So Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that you do so many amazing things in each of our lives. Thank you that each of us have a testimony of how you have been at work and that you do perform miracles for us every day. And sometimes they're big and glamorous and sometimes they're small and insignificant and seemingly from our eyes. But I ask Father that you would open our eyes to be able to appreciate even the little things and acknowledge you in them and praise you for them and bless you for them. And I ask Father that You would help us to have a healthy hunger for more of you in our lives and to also have a hunger for the good spiritual nourishment that you give us through your word and through your son, Yeshua. I ask your blessing on the rest of our time today and that you would go with us as we go our separate ways this week. In Yeshua's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.